Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Let's kick things off with Women Who Code Conversations. This week, we have an interview with Elizabeth Curick, VP of Cloud Marketing at Ionos. She discusses her experiences as a tech professional, her views on leadership, the state of cloud computing, and how she believes the industry is evolving. Hello, everyone. My name is Francia. Uh, I'm the Leadership Fellow for Women Who Code Front and Track based in Berlin. And today I'm here with Elizabeth Kurek, who is an American cloud leader and diversity advocate living in Germany with 15 plus years of experience in the cloud industry. Elizabeth is currently the VP of cloud marketing at Ionos, leading campaign marketing, technical marketing, and the website management teams for all Ionos cloud products worldwide. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being with us today. Uh, tell us more about your career journey and tell us about your role as the VP of Cloud Marketing at Aonos. Yeah, thank you, Princia, so much for having me here today. Um, it's really an honor to be able to speak to so many talented women um, at Women Who Code. Um, so thank you for that. Um, about my career and how I got into the cloud, um, I actually didn't take a typical career path. So I have not studied marketing, uh, secret, <laughs> and I haven't studied um, any sort of coding. So I actually um, got started in tech um, in 2006 when um, a company, one and one a German company, was hiring um, in the U.S. for their marketing team. And at the time, they hired me uh, because of my German language skills. So I do speak German. And um, they were looking for someone who could work with the website management team in Germany. So um, with my role as a web editor uh, at one and one I started out uh, working in HTML. So at some point, I made the decision to move into a marketing management role rather than continue down uh, more of a developer path. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, I stopped learning in terms of my technical knowledge. So um, in my daily work, I'm not developing, um, but I am leveraging marketing tools. And this is something um, on the one hand within marketing, I take upon myself to self-educate, to be open and um, continue to learning new tools. But this also means on the product side that um, in cloud, especially, I have to date, right? So this is important in this field. Um, so it doesn't mean that I need to know every single tech trend and tool in detail, um, but to be aware of what the trends are um, and that they exist. Now, looking into what I do at Eonos today, um, I really have um, a mix of everything. So I'm responsible for cloud marketing. That means if it has cloud in it, I'm responsible. So that can be, for example, our campaign management, um, content marketing, online marketing, um, partner marketing is a very big element of what, um, what we do, what I'm responsible for. Um, so ensuring that overall, um, Ianos, that the marketing, the messaging and positioning is accurate and that also we're, um, that we're growing, right? So um, this is part of what I do every day. Um, I could also add, um, as part of that, of course, is managing a team. So um, I have um, at the moment um, both employees direct in the Berlin office where I'm based, but also um, internationally as well. So managing both directly a team and then also remote, um, remote team members. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's that's really great. And uh, yeah, thank you for telling a bit more about your career journey and your current role as the at at Aonos. Uh, yeah. So, what technical skills do you use specifically, like you know, for this job? Uh, yeah. At some point, you said um, you um, started with HTML, and then it went about like marketing. And with the cloud industry, um, as you said, needs to be updated in tech. So tell us a bit, a uh, bit about the technical skills that you use specifically, like on a day-to-day -day business or the job. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I have to first and foremost say, since this is a women who code interview, um, those who are actually coding have my utmost respect. Yeah. So um, the, coding, uh, the coding world and all of you um, every day who are actually coding. So kudos, shout out, really my respect. Um, while I am not directly coding in my daily work, um, we do use technical tools in marketing. So um, currently, for example, we are using salesforce.com. So um, this is a way to track our, our marketing performance and also um, the customer insights. We also um, leverage Pardot or HubSpot as two, um, two additional tools um, in terms of um, email marketing, but also um, lead, lead generation, so technical tools behind that. Um, in the past, I've also uh, dabbled in Marketo very briefly at my time at AWS, where I quickly learned, okay, um, I wasn't ready for the advanced level and also that I should leave that to the experts at this point in my career and also a bit of, of Tableau as well. Um, we have um, various technical tools that are leveraged in, in marketing in my current role every day. Awesome. That's that's uh, really, really impressive. Uh, yeah, so for uh, folks listening, uh, prior to Ionos, Elizabeth also led market, partner marketing for the DAC region at AWS, driving her region to the number one partner marketing pipeline in uh, EMEA. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's a very impressive career journey, uh, Elizabeth, that you've got. Uh, you're also a diversity advocate at Ionos. So how did you get into DEI and what does it uh, look like? Yeah, so um, how I got into DNI, um, I would say actually I was born with it, you know, born this way, if I may say. <laughs> um, I truly was. So um, my, the story that I tell is um, one of my first experiences um, as a child, actually. Um, I was a very girly girl, right? So I had my Barbie dream house. Um, everything in pink. I did redid my bedroom three times, all three times in pink. Um, but I also am the only daughter in my family and the only granddaughter. So I have two brothers and I have six boy cousins. So I was also very much like um, playing outside uh, a team and making sports. Um, so all of that. But um, I remember that when um, I was in Toys R Us, I wanted to look for Legos because I really like Legos. And I remember my mom standing at the other end of the aisle at Toys R Us and myself turning around and saying, mom, why don't they make Legos for girls? And um, for me at the time, it was, okay, I was a very girly girl and I was looking for, you know, okay, we've got knights or pirates. It was always the same two options, but there was no, you know, there wasn't a princess or a house or all of these things. And now I'm not saying, of course, course that all women and all girls are girly girls of course um, each person is unique but for myself um, <laughs> who um, enjoyed uh, playing with those those types of toys um, I was looking for that right so it already started at a young age and um, when I moved into a technical role I noticed it even more so so um, at the time we're talking 2006 so there were not uh, very women, very many women in tech at all. I remember the first hosting conference I went to at the time. Um, I looked around; it was in DC, and there was only one other woman in the entire in tech event um, who wasn't hired as entertainment. Um, actually, her name is Allison Heather, and uh, we're still uh, friends to this day and are part of each other's network. Um, but realizing, okay, something has to be done here, right? Um, and inofficially, 
I had started with kind of just some of the women in our office, we would meet up regularly once a week to um, kind of have a sounding board for one another, but also tips and always thought, okay, you know, this needs to be something bigger, right? A network um, to build, um, to change things. And um, I hit a milestone birthday in, in um, 2015. I won't say which milestone that was, you can figure that out. Um, <laughs> but um, at that point I thought, okay, no, Elizabeth, you've been talking about it. You've seen the problem, take action, right? Um, so at that point, I actually um, reached out to the I2 coalition. So the internet infrastructure coalition. So it's a community of, um, as the name implies, internet infrastructure providers. So data centers, hosting companies, cloud companies. So there are members like um, Google and Rackspace and um, GoDaddy and web.com. And um, really rather than starting something as one person, leveraging the community together. And so um, I approached the I2 coalition, met the chairman at an event, asked him to meet for you know, uh, a short meeting to discuss the topic and then he had said, okay, sounds good. We'll invite you to the next meeting to um, present your idea. So, and I still remember when I was invited, um, <laughs> you have to remember too, a lot of what the coalition does is around policy, right? So there were lawyers on the call and security experts. And I didn't understand, I would say like 80% of the call to be honest. And then they said, okay, here's Elizabeth um, now who will uh, present this idea. And I just did. Um, I went for it and then they invited me back for the second round um, to approve and the working group actually got approved and established. So that was kind of my start into it, um, into the topic. Um, over the years, it's evolved further. So I was very active, of course, in the coalition and in volunteer roles in the United States. And now being based in Germany, um, you know, I was active in the European coalition, um, there's the Eco for Bond, which is um, a wonderful organization here based in Europe, um, again, of internet infrastructure uh, providers. And then um, at my time at AWS, of course, um, various initiatives there. And now at EONOS, um, I'm an advocate, continue to do that both within the EONOS world, but also just um, yeah, as a volunteer advocate, right? So if, I, if I'm able to, and there's an opportunity where I'm able to contribute, I, I welcome that. Awesome, that's, that's really impressive. And yeah, Elizabeth, you're like truly a champion for diversity in the tech industry. And yeah, thanks for like, you know, uh, working closely with these um, initiatives. So we want more leaders like you. Uh, tell us a bit uh, more about your leadership style. What is it, um, and uh, what 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 is it like for colleagues to work with you? Yeah, I'm smiling because I wonder if you asked my department what they would <laughs> what they would say to that. So I can say um, I 100% adhere to the Steve Jobs quote, which is that I don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. I hire smart people so that they tell me what to do. And I 100% adhere to that motto. Um, I would say in terms of um, the team and the leadership style, what this means is um, I try to have an open approach as much as possible. Um, I want to create an environment where um, my team is comfortable coming to me to make um, suggestions, to have their own ideas, um, to share that. Um, and on the other hand, um, I also strive for transparency as much as possible. So that's really important to me that, okay, you know, um, there are some things that you're not able to share, right, but as much as possible and where it's, um, you know, permitted within the, the guidelines, right, that you're able to communicate that to be honest with the team as much as possible even if that means um, admitting that things are not perfect or there's a mistake, um, for me, the, the transparent approach is the best way. Oh, and if I may say too, while I smiled about the team, so that's kind of the management style. The other thing I would say for those of you um, who, who have worked with me or the team that worked with me, there would be, you could say a little bit of crazy, <laughs> or I would say a little bit of creativity to give it a professional way. So um, I love also um, having an environment where people are free to give ideas and even if it's, you know, something that's totally 
out there with an idea. I, I love it to bring that in and to think in an innovative way in a creative way. Awesome, yeah. I think it's also important as leaders to be able to be our authentic selves so that, yeah, we can like, you know, let others do what they want to do. I'm just like dropping off from a strength finder session from work. Um, and yeah, it, it was great as well as a team to figure out where we are in strengths or uh, what are the things that uh, we bring. So yeah, definitely. I'm like, um, I'm really glad that you shared. Uh, what is it like for you to be your 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 true self leader so thank yeah. you elizabeth yeah love that Francia. yeah thank you great uh yeah i think irrespective of tech when it comes to leadership positions itself women like keep getting uh uh women are seen in uh, lesser numbers so have you had any instances where you can share maybe that you have used your leadership privilege in terms of mentorship and or sponsorship to maybe other women or maybe non-women yeah, sure. Um, yes, so um, absolutely. And when we think about diversity and inclusion, um, there are many factors that uh, come into play. So you have on the one hand, okay, corporate factors and corporate policy. There are also um, the societal factors, right? Um, internal and external, micro and macro. Um, so when looking at this, um, I think regardless of one's position, um, there are always things that you can do to drive change, even if it's something small. So in the past where I didn't have, you know, a big budget or um, a large team, um, try, I tried to on the on the micro level to change things. So, for example, I remember um, one conference that I attended and, um, okay, looking around, yeah, um, there was uh, one woman in the room participating who was not white. And I noticed she was sitting by herself and I thought, okay, let me just go over and sit next to her. And I just said, hi, you know, I'm Elizabeth and um, you know, I'm happy that you're here and like, tell me about yourself, right? So just on the micro level to show a gesture that's, you know, um, an inclusive gesture, right? Um, and now in my role as a VP at Aonos, um, I actually have a position of privilege where I'm able to, uh, to influence, influence things on a larger level. So. One example I can give is that um, we recently produced a, um, a partner video, so a video at our company, um, customer facing. And um, at the end of the video, I realized, oh, we don't have a single woman in that video. And it also was, I know uh, it would be a bit painful because the teams had to go back and edit it. And it was a moment where I thought like, oh, do I really want to like drive this point home? And um, I realized, no. Elizabeth, you know, privileged position, you can change it, you have to do it, even if it's extra work. Um, and so there are examples now in my daily work where I am privileged and I do have the opportunity to, um, to influence and change things. Um, I try to as best as I can to keep this in mind, of course, um, but yes, that is, I think regardless of one's role, everyone um, can make a difference um, with small things every day. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's so, so well said. And yeah, thank you, like, you know, for uh, doing this or being able to do, do this. So that's that's like really, really appreciated. Yeah, uh, you mentioned about uh, being able to work with your team, let them bring their creative self. So what else are you passionate about? Like, you know, apart from work. So tell us a bit about what else. What else do we see Elizabeth Kurek doing when she's not yeah. working? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, so one of my passions is very difficult at the moment, um, which is travel, right? So travel and also in combination with food. So I am a total foodie. Um, I also, you know, not unrelated to my diversity passion, um, also love enjoying um, trying new foods, um, you know, from, from different cultural backgrounds, different types of foods, and also traveling to experience that. Um, I've also had the opportunity throughout the years to meet friends um, in different different locations um, across the world through work, through studies, um, and to try to maintain them. So um, I really enjoy visiting them. It's again been challenging with Corona, um, but that's something that um, we hope will be behind us soon or at least manageable to be able to pick that back up again. Awesome. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, for folks listening, um, Elizabeth and I discovered just before we started the interview that we both are from Berlin and we plan to meet uh, sometime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yes, we should like definitely catch up like for food. I am a total foodie too. Love exploring like different places to try out food. So yeah, let's definitely meet. <laughs> yes, absolutely, Prentia. This is an added bonus. I was unaware of that fact before this interview, but um, would love to. And I am always, always open to um, to trying new new restaurants. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, what pro tip do you have for aspiring next gen of directors or VPs? Um, so a, a tip, Princia? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, okay. So I would say the tip has uh, two words. So um, network and negotiate. And they both start with N. So the double N, easy to remember. Um, and by networking, what I can say... Um, is that every event you go to, um, every meeting that you have, even if it's um, someone senior to you in the hierarchy, connect with that person. So it's an, it's an ongoing effort. And especially I notice, you know, at events, sometimes you get done with the event, you're like, oh yeah, do I want to reach out, follow up, you know, with everyone? So first of all, you can do it on site, but if you don't have the opportunity really afterwards, you know, within 24 to 48 hours, write a short, you know, LinkedIn request and just say, you know, hi, it was a pleasure meeting you. Let's stay in touch. So um, I can say for myself that has 100% um, supported my career to get me to where I am today, um, the network. Um, and the network includes um, all levels and diverse backgrounds, both, both male and female are important. I have to say all genders. Um, included. Um, so this is really important. So the networking. And the second part is negotiating. Um, and this is something that um, since we're talking to a women who code audience today, um, oftentimes is not the case where, um, you know, women for a number of reasons may not feel as comfortable um, negotiating or really knowing their value, right, to put out there, which I won't get into the reasons. But um, there's um, a wonderful woman in my network, Reese Bradby, who runs uh, Women in Negotiation. So she's leading workshops on this as well. Um, so here, she's based over in Europe, but international workshops. And this is critical. So really to understand um, to, you know, where, you, where you want to go, to know the value of what you're, um, what you're worth, right? And not be afraid to ask for it, right? So if you um, are at the point where a company is ready to make you an offer, they're not going to, you know, withdraw the offer just because, you know, um, you know, there's, you're asking for too much, right? So there's, and if they come to their limit, they'll tell you that, but always negotiate, go for the maximum. Um, I would say as an American, get your money, <laughs> but um, in a professional way, know, know your worth and, and negotiate for it. Don't settle. Awesome. That's that's so wonderful. Um, and yes, both networking and negotiation, like you said, does come. You have to come out of your comfort zone to be able to do this. So which also like takes a bit of practice and uh, yeah, I guess a little bit of experience as well. But yeah, it's it's I love the correlation or the connection with the two ends, network and negotiation. So love that. And uh, thanks. Thanks for sharing it so much, Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, I'm done with my set of questions and we survived with our Berlin uh, Wi-Fi issues. <laughs> we, <laughs> we did get disconnected. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being able to join with us today. And thank you, Ionos and Women Accord for setting this opportunity um, to yeah, learn a bit more about Elizabeth, about what she does and about what she what advices she has to offer thank you princia it was an um, an honor to be with you and um, the women who code community today thank you very much in the women who code career nav segment of our show you'll hear real world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed these talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices. For the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of the show, we'll be featuring Viviana Siles, CTO and co-founder of Quipu Market. 
She speaks on alternative blockchain currencies that can be used in informal economies in Latin America. Hi everybody, I'm Viviana Siles. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Kipu Market. And today I'm going to be talking about how to use blockchain uh, to model alternative currencies for informal economies in Latin America. So Kipu is an app for the neighborhood economy in LATAM that enables trade without using money while building great worthiness. So I'm gonna start first with uh, some pain points in LATAM. Uh, so one is that there is high levels of informality. Many workers uh, are informal. A large percentage of the population is bank. There is high levels of not digitalization. There is access to computers and phones, but still many transactions happen uh, on cash or not in, not in digital manners. And this also uh, it, it makes the access to capital harder. Uh, there is no recorded information and therefore you cannot access uh, capital to grow your business. Um, there is uh, often not enough liquidity. And there is a lot of invisibility. People living in public housing or informal settlements, they are far away from urban, set, uh, urban areas and it's harder for them to reach uh, customers. And sometimes they even uh, sell from their house that can be the fifth floor of a building. And from there, it's really hard to reach customers. So therefore you, you become a little bit ambitious. Um, so I'm gonna start, uh, this is the agenda today. So the first thing is going a little bit uh, deeper into the problem. Then I'm gonna talk a little bit about our solution, which are digital marketplaces with alternative currencies. And then uh, we'll talk about the technology, the apps and the architecture. And I will end up with the impact, uh, what's the impact that this generates, uh, how it's being implemented and used. So the problem, First, half of the population in Latin America is some bank. They are underserved by financial services and the majority of the workers are informally employed. Uh, one quarter of the population in Latin America lives in informal settlements, which are places that look like this or this. These are four neighborhoods in where we are working currently in. Um, the first one, Vision San Pablo, is what has been our pilot marketplace. And these neighborhood economies uh, face three main barriers for growth. Uh, one is information and visibility. They lack information and visibility. They lack access to capital flow or there's no enough liquidity. Um, there is, they lack access to capital for growing their businesses. And this has also became worse during COVID, during the pandemic. Uh, but Informal neighborhoods are thriving places for commerce where millions of businesses operate. You can find uh, entrepreneurs like Julia that sells handcrafted uh, shoes from her house, Daniris that has a restaurant in her own backyard, or Juan that has a corner store. These are some of our entrepreneurs. And these neighborhoods uh, have three main assets. They, they have high uh, smartphone penetration, uh, they have high, high levels of social capital, which means that they are really community oriented. And they and recently have increased financial digitalization and inclusion. So for example, right now, 31 million of Colombians have access to digital deposit accounts, which wasn't like that uh, some time ago. And Kipus uh, were the income mechanisms for, for recording transactions, they were their, their accounting uh, mechanism. So every time a transaction will happen, they will generate a note to record that. Um, we want to come back to our rule uh, by bringing Kipus into the 21st century. And so our solution are digital marketplaces that enable trade without money while building great worthiness. And so this is, let me show you how this works. Daniris um, will create her business profile in the app and she will upload her business and the products or services that she provides. And she will receive at that moment some first, uh, some tokens for being a first time user. Um, and now she will go on the app and look for other things that she can find in the app. And she will find that Julia is selling handcrafted shoes. 
um, and she will go and buy her by paying parting tokens and parting pesos. So now Julia will use the tokens that she should earn from selling the shoes and the tokens that she had before for being a first time user uh, and will go and buy arepas uh, from Rafael. And this should generate a chain of transactions that are digital in our app and are a P2P interest-free credit. In the front end for the users, this is just a marketplace, but for us, uh, there is granular, it's granular data about the informal economy that isn't existent today. This has information about offer and demand, our rating, our behavior, our uh, chat uh, discussions between users. It has so much information that we can use to unlock uh, equitable financial services for our users. So going into the tech, this is two different apps. One is a marketplace and one is a dashboard or a wagon application. And they are both web applications. The marketplace is building Angular. Uh, we use Firestore for, for recording the data and Algolia for indexing our, our, our data or database. Um, the dashboard app is uh, Angular. It has Angular and Ionic on the front end. The backend is Java using Spring Boot, and the the database is again in Firestore. But the dashboard access not only has its own little database, but it also access the marketplace that database. In the middle, we have blockchain, which are for us. Uh, services that we will call every time a transaction happens or every time we want to record something on the blockchain. And we use Algorand uh, public and private network. So going more into the blockchain, um, we use Algorand uh, standard assets. We have one per community in the sense that each community has a different coin or token. And, and we transact this in a public private network. So the, the transactions of these tokens, which we call tickipus, uh, happen on a public network, while all the user identifiable information will happen on a private network. Uh, we choose, everything is also recorded in our database. Um, and we choose uh, Algorand because uh, transactions are low cost and really fast. And for us, uh, working in informal settlements, transactions are daily, they, every, all these little daily uh, daily transactions. Um, so, and also in Latin America, so a transaction might be between $3 to $5. It could be as low as that. So for us, minimizing the cost of gas is really important and also the how quick the transaction can, can be performed. And also Algorand provides us with um, Clovac, uh, features such as Clovac address or routine that allows us to really manage the account if they lose the, the, the address or the password, or they can, they can use our app without even noticing there is a blockchain uh, on the back. Um, and we can manage all that uh, for, for our users. That is one possibility. So that's really uh, interesting for us. And we use NFTs to generate a digital financial ID, which for example, if you want to know what a, what what transactions belong to one user, what you will do is just query on that NFT instead of the, the address. And so this is how our blockchain will look like. The top layer, the public network uh, contains the Kipu transactions. So you see that there is one transaction of Kipus uh, in community A, and then there is another transaction of Kipus in community B, and these are different assets. Uh, but for example, we can exchange assets across communities. It could be with the smart contracts that just uh, make the exchange at zero value. Uh, but for example, if we will want to retain the wealth in one community and not allow it to leak into communities that are in different regions really far away, uh, we can just model that with a smart contract by adding some, some fee to that exchange. And in the bottom layer, in the private network, we have all the user identifiable information. We have the NFTs with the uh, with the phone, with the i, with the yeah, your your password ID, all, all the information that is really private for the user that allows us to identify these users. And so this is the part of the app or the technical part. And now I'm gonna talk a little bit about how this has an impact and how it's been implemented and used. 
And so for us, our marketplaces are launched, I launched both from financial uncertainty to financial prosperity. The marketplace itself already provides visibility to the users and it enables transactions to happen without money. So when there is no enough liquidity, when people don't have enough cash, they can still transact between each other. Um, and this creates a lot of data for us that allows us to analyze it and create alternative credit scores to provide uh, tailor-made equitable financial services for them. And so our business model is B2B to C. The marketplace is free for the user to, to use, uh, but we record all these transactions and we partner with MFAs to analyze this data and to provide loans uh, at, very, at, at lower interest rates. Um, we also have the NFTs uh, that they are in the private network and that allows us to, for example, uh, charge membership for policy making, policy making uh, or, or other institutions that might want to access the data to, to maybe to provide uh, financial services or for other, uh, for other uh, things uh, that can drive financial inclusion. And also other, other things that are interesting to us is that by being on the blockchain, we can collaborate or exchange with other apps that are in, in, the, in that environment. So we launched in March 2021. Uh, we, we have five partnerships confirmed and we are working already with five organizations in different communities. Uh, we have today 1,000 users registered, uh, more than 500 registered businesses, um, 1,300 uh, products and services being offered in our marketplace, uh, more than 650 transactions, and we have right now more than 150 applicants to create, which this is really um, it's really exciting for us because all this app is what it's trying to do. It's trying to record data and to analyze it better to provide alternative uh, financial services uh, for those who today cannot really access those. And so this is the team. Uh, we met at MIT and Harvard. Um, most of the team were doing a master at MIT. I was doing a postdoc at Harvard. Um, and, and we have experience working uh, in informal settlements public housing, and a lot of experience building technology too in, in Latin America. We have won several prizes and grants from MIT, uh, Google. We recently won, uh, were finalists in a Pino Vista Algorand, uh, Summit. Uh, our pilot was, was funded by the IDB Lab and the Fundación Santo Domingo in Barranquilla. Uh, we've been in many accelerators and we have our early investors today that are the Med Fund and Adam Capital. Um, with that, um, I will conclude and thank you everybody for hearing and being here today. I leave you my email. Please feel free to contact me if you have any question or you want to talk about anything further. Um, please follow us on all the social media. Thank you. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. Today on Women Who Code Talks Tech, we have Gracia Calstotti, our Digital Community Program Manager at Women Who Code. She's giving a talk entitled, How to Build Inclusive Technology. Enjoy. Thank you everyone for joining my session. Um, and also a huge thank you to the Women Who Go Global team for organizing this amazing event. Thank you so much, uh, Shana, for all the support and the opportunity for uh, speak here today. Uh, so first, I am going to introduce myself uh, very quickly. So as uh, I told you before, I am Mexican. I am also an information systems engineer. I have studies in Universidad de Monterrey and also in Nagaoka University of Technology, that's in Japan. And that's where I specialize in human computer interfaces. Uh, I have been a director of Women Who Code Monterrey Network for almost five years. And I also work as a project manager at Playful which is a business innovation consulting company here at Mexico. Uh, we work for um, 
mostly Mexican companies uh, to help them create human-centered experiences for their customers and their employees. And I am specialized in user experience design and user research. Uh, so most of the projects I lead are about these topics. So first of all, I would like to explain you a little bit of what is the role of a UX designer in a tech project or what is UX design at all. I guess most of us are already in the tech field and many of you may be related to the UX design concept, but I will anyway explain very briefly what I do so you can understand all of my ex examples during my talk. So I lead uh, tech projects and especially those focused on UX design. So UX design should be the first phase of for any tech project. So before you start to code anything, you need to first assign what the experience of using your, your software will be. Uh, so the main activities are uh, executing user research, also carrying out ideation workshops, you know, all those full of sticky notes, uh, also to design new experiences. And by this, I mean designing the contents as well as the visual interfaces, but also the functionality. Uh, so the goal here is to make a user-centered design. And once we have this design, it's ready to be developed. So uh, with this in mind, um, I want to just for a moment, imagine you are going to start a new project, which is about designing and building a website for selling mattresses. And it should be oriented to young adults. So that's it. I think we all use a mattress, right? Uh, maybe uh, you sleep on a futon, like when I lived in Japan, I used to sleep in a futon, or maybe a hammock or something else, but we all have something similar to a mattress. So just think for a few seconds, what will be your next activities? So maybe if you are new to all this design and phase and everything, you will think something like this, and you will think uh, about your own experiences buying a mattress. So in my, in my case, I will tell you about my experience buying my first mat mattress. So it was when I was 18 and I moved from my hometown to Monterey to study college. So it was a very simple experience. I went to the store, I tried a couple of them and I checked the size because my room, you know, my student room was very small. So I checked if it, it will fit in my room. And I also asked if they had home delivery. I had no car, I had no way of taking a big mattress with me. So that was important for me. I didn't check price. I mean, I just checked it was not the most expensive. And uh, I didn't know about mattresses brands, so I didn't care about that. So I, I just chose one and that was, that was my experience. You can think of your own experiences. And uh, with this in mind, you know, I could start designing a very nice website uh, considering it was for young people, maybe students like myself at that time, uh, who don't really care about price, uh, don't, don't really care about the brand, uh, and who also won't consider price, but uh, they will buy something if you have the size that they are looking for and if you have home delivery. So if... Uh, you know, I could start designing with this or I could do something else. And that was actually what I did. I did something else because this was in fact a real project that I had a couple of years ago. So I ran this research study um, in order to know what was other people's experiences. So what I found out, and this was only for Mexico, so I found out that Mexicans at 18 years old we usually still live with our parents. So it's not like in the US that you move away from your parents at this age, but we still live with our parents as the most common thing. And uh, people will only change mattress if it is old or if they need to move, like in my case. And usually um, the moms are the ones who make the decision. So the mom will think, oh, I have this mattress uh, that has been with me for 20 years, so I will buy the same brand. So the brand is important for them, for the moms. And only when they get married, they can decide by their own. And it's more of a couple's decision. And they usually, almost all of the, um, all of the Mexicans, we prefer to go to the store and try the mattresses there. So maybe buying online is not even an option. 
And most of the people, and this is very important, they consider the price as an important factor. So the image you see here, it's really common to see this, to see promotions and discounts on mattresses because people consider price and if it's cheaper, they will buy it. Okay, so if we compare both of the results, uh, my experience and other people's experiences, you can see they look very different. So what I had in mind or what actually happened to me is not what other Mexicans experience. So I call the first scenario designing for yourself and I call the second scenario designing for users. So what are the differences? Uh, when you design for yourself, you only consider your own experiences, your assumptions and your beliefs. And we have this very important rule of UX design. I want you to memorize it, which is you are not the user. Maybe you have lived a similar experience like in my case, but if you are the designer or the developer, that makes you not the user. So uh, you always need to go with the users and ask them about their experiences and not think that you are the user. And in the second case, when you design for users, uh, you really consider all possible users, all possible persons. You eliminate biases or any pre-assumptions that you may have. And you can have better user experiences. You can have inclusive designs. And most important, you can design with empathy. You, you can be empathetic to other people. Uh, I have given many talks about UX design and people always ask me, what do I need to start designing user experience? And I always tell them, you need empathy. I mean, the techniques and other important things, you can grab a book and read them and that's okay. But if you don't have empathy, you won't be a, a good UX designer. So this is why uh, I want to share with you five factors that in my experience are important when you are designing for all of these different users. So uh, you can really build an inclusive design. So they are a culture disability, education level, preference and use context. So first, the culture. I think we can all relate to this one. This is why it is the first one because we have many cultures present here so it is uh, something that, that we can relate, I think. So in this case, I'm going to talk about two different kinds of culture. One is the external one that can be related to a country, a religion or a community, but we also have the internal culture. So uh, this is more what happens inside an organization. It's, it's also called organizational culture. So about uh, the external culture, we should ask ourselves, how do people behave in different countries or communities? Uh, you know, there are many international companies with presence in different countries. Do you think they work in the same way in all of the countries? So there's this example. Uh, in the USA, 80% of the people have a debit card, but in Mexico, it's only 47%. So what Uber and Amazon did, uh, they started accepting cash as a payment method. Uh, I know this exists also in, in other countries, but how do you think they, they decided to, to do this, to, to offer this option for these uh, countries? They uh, were, of course, based on people's behaviors and the differences uh, between different cultures. So also um, about the external culture, uh, if you know, 7-Eleven is an American company of convenience stores. It has presence in more than 17 countries. So I recently led the project of redesigning the mobile app for 7-Eleven Mexico, which is the one that you see in the middle. Uh, this is the picture of the old design. I cannot show you the new one yet, uh, but we had to make a whole research. We started by looking at uh, other countries uh, where 7-Eleven had presence. So we could notice that 7-Eleven uh, adapted to the different countries, to the different kind of customers. For the American customers, they, they also have this application but they offer uh, coupons for more sugary drinks, like the ones you see on the first image. Uh, for Mexico, it is more oriented to snacks or quick meals, uh, like uh, we have nachos, pizza, donuts, coffee, and more. And, and they also have these special options for paying your bills. So you can go to the store and pay your bills in a quicker way. And for Japan, I couldn't find a mobile application, but I'm sure uh, it will be 
oriented maybe to buying onigiris, bentos, or something that people in Japan like to buy at 7-Eleven. So as you can see, it's the same international brand that I'm sure that many of you know, but it is adapted to the different cultures. So next, about the internal culture, we need to ask ourselves, are employees within our, an organization willing to change? I participated in a project about implementing innovation in organizational culture uh, of a retail company. And we also ran a couple of studies. We wanted to measure the resistance to change that employees may have uh, in order to create a strategy. And we found out that at operative levels, uh, as you can see, more than half of the people were not aware that they needed to change. And also 70, 67 of them were not willing to change. So they, they thought they were okay with the things as they are now. They didn't want to implement innovation at all. So we could think that this was a different for the executive employees, but actually it was, it was very similar. 47 of the executive employees uh, were also not aware of the need of change and uh, more than a half were not willing to change. They didn't want to change at all. So I recommend you to, before making any big change with technology or innovation, first measure uh, the people's resistance uh, because you can create better strategies and you can adapt to the internal culture that they may have. So the next, um, the next factor is usability. I don't know if you have seen this number, but there are 1.3 billion people in the world that have any kind of disabilities. This is almost the population of China, and it is actually the largest minority in the world. So you need to consider all the possibilities when you are designing technology. And uh, let's think of these three people. So there's Mary. She is 63 years old. She has limited vision due to diabetes. And she needs to be able to check her bank account balance and also her movements whenever she goes to her uh, digital bank. So if we are designing this digital banking, we need to be sure that the font size is big enough so Mary can read all this important information. There is also Abhinav. He is 25 years old. He has a muscle weakness and he needs a way to fill out a form using only his voice and keyboard. Okay, and there's also Camila. She is 37 years old. She immigrated to the US two months ago. She's still learning English. And uh, when she is reading local news, she needs to read uh, two times, three times in order to understand really what it is saying. And also when watching videos, she needs the captions so she can read what and, and really get to know what is happening. Okay, so think about these users and all the possibilities that, that you may have in, in your users. And uh, in fact, uh, the newest Apple OS, which is Catalina, has already come to a solution to Abinav's problem, uh, which is a way of navigating your Mac or any Apple device using only voice. This is very interesting and I invite you to read their guidelines and they have really nice examples of how you, you can solve these user problems. So the third factor is education level. And I think many of us are privileged because we have a university degree or maybe a technical one. But if we look at this graph that I am showing you, we can see that the percentage of people with tertiary education level is still very different from one country to another. And in Latin American countries like Mexico or Brazil, it is still very low. So we should never take for granted that our users will have the same education as we do. And um, we need, um, for this, we have to think about how we can talk to users in their own language so they can understand better. So as I told you, I have worked with projects focused on convenience stores. And I am showing you these examples because you may be related to convenience stores. You, you may know these brands and uh, like the 7-Eleven mobile application. And I also have worked with the largest Mexican convenience store company, which is OXO. And both of them have similar employees. Okay, so if we look at their employees, they completed a junior high school. Maybe many of them have also completed high school. 
And there are also many old people, uh, there are many students working there. And they have the usual cashier responsibilities, but they also have all these payment, payments and bank transactions responsibilities. I don't know in other places, but in Mexico, you can, you can do all these payments. Instead of going to a bank, you can make all these payments and transferences uh, in a convenience store. So it's much more convenient. As I told you, uh, most of Mexicans don't have a debit card. So it's more convenient to, to go to your neighborhood's convenience store and pay there. But many clerks see this as a lot more effort. And they even say that convenience stores are like the new banks. So it is difficult for them. So in the projects that I have worked with them, we always try to do this. We try to change very complicated words like beneficiary, sender, bank correspondent, and these words that I didn't even know how to say them in English. They are complicated for me too. Uh, to more simple words or phrases, maybe something like who is sending the money, who will receive the money, uh, or words like deposit payment, something that we can all understand. So the language is very important. Uh, not all the users, and it's not only the education level that they have, but also they, they don't have the specialized knowledge that maybe uh, a bank employee will have. So you have to come with better ways of communicating of users, simpler words that they will all understand. Okay. so. Going to the next uh, point is preference. And now I, I know this is a very subjective term. Uh, I don't mean that you have to consider what colors the users prefer. Uh, what I want to focus in is uh, in the smartphone use against computers or laptops. Uh, you know, in Mexico, we used to have these internet cafes everywhere. I'm, I'm sure in other countries you had them as well. And, uh, you know, if you went there, you could see kids uh, playing video games, doing homework, maybe hanging out with friends, but now they disappeared. They disappeared and now you can see the kids with their, their smartphones, uh, maybe looking for a place with a free internet connection and playing games there, doing their homeworks. So in this graph, you can see exactly that, uh, the penetration of the smartphones has increased uh, in only this is for only two years uh, and we also can see that we still have differences among different countries so take this into con consideration uh, when you create any digital product uh, you need to ask what are the users lifestyles and preferences do they prefer uh, experience more on the go like when they are looking for bus or subway timetables while they are waiting at the station maybe or playing games while they go in the subway, or maybe buying tickets in advance when they are going to the movies, or maybe uh, messages, messaging when, when they are walking on the street, or maybe they prefer an experience uh, more like for uh, at home or office, such as watching videos, reading news, checking email, or any work-related activity. And now you can do almost all of them either on a smartphone or a computer. But the thing here is, what do they prefer according to their lifestyles? So consider this when designing any technology as well. And the final point is uh, uh, the context of use. In the context of use, uh, I know there are also many considerations regarding the context. But now, now I want to talk about the internet connection. If you are creating any digital product, I'm sure your users will need internet at least when they are downloading it. So at any point that they will need internet. And please look at this map. I think it has many contrasting internet speeds. Uh, so first of all, you need to uh, consider your, your users countries internet speed. This is the average, of course. And inside the same country, there are also huge differences. So as you can see, it is very contrasting um, among the different countries. And for this, um, I want to give this example. I recently worked uh, for um, a project for a Mexican retirement savings company. 
So it was about redesigning their system uh, that they used to serve their customers at their branches, uh, and their branches are all over Mexico. So we found out that the branches in the big cities are always so crowded. The people are more used to a hurried lifestyle, so they don't, they don't like waiting in lines. They want a quick attention. They don't want to be waiting too long. Uh, so the transaction times are very important for them. And on the other hand, when you go to the small towns, uh, they, they are more used to a very slow pace and the branches there are, uh, you know, they, they only have one clerk, they have one computer, they have one printer, so everyone have to wait there. And the internet speed is much slower. So the context in both of them are very different. It's the same company, but if you look at two different cities, the context changes completely. So another example, uh, again with convenience store, I also participated uh, in the redesign of the point of sale experience for 7-Eleven Mexico. So we run a lot of research studies. Uh, here we focus more on the, on the field research. We went to different stores in the city. So we went to stores in residential areas. We went to stores in offices areas and also in university or school areas. So you can imagine the differences. But the most crowded and busy was the one near the university, the local university subway station. It was a lunchtime when we went there and it was a permanent line of more than eight, eight people uh, waiting, most of them students. They wanted, you know, to, to buy a quick lunch or snack before or after their classes. And the cashier there, there was only one cashier and she was very busy serving the customers. She didn't waste any time reading anything on the screen. She just scanned the products, read the total and collected the money. She took, I think, 10 seconds in each one of the transactions. So we could notice that in, in this kind of busy context, the users don't have to read all the long, don't, don't have time to read all the long text texts that we usually, that, that designers and programmers, we usually like to put long texts there. So they don't have the time to read them. Also, they don't have the time, the time to see all the cool animations that we also like to design because the context is so busy that all they need is an agile solution so they can be able to finish the transaction in less than 20 seconds. And um, this is an example, the image that you see here of the design solutions that we offered. So in this example, you can see uh, how you can uh, buy donuts. So before, if you wanted a, a box of six donuts, you needed to enter the menu six times to choose each one of them. So now uh, for this solution, they just entered this option once and they can choose uh, the six different donuts that you are buying. So it is very simple, but it, it takes less time for them uh, and also customers don't have to be waiting in these long lines. Okay, so these were the five factors that I, um, that I mentioned and please consider them when you are designing. They were culture, disability, education level, preference and use context. And again, you don't have to be a designer to consider uh, your users uh, to create inclusive technology. Uh, you just really need to think of the users and and really think of who will be using your your software okay so just uh, to finish i think i have enough time yet so i just want to share a few thoughts before finishing so the first one uh, i i will ask you to be aware and empathetic of what's happening in other places with technology we can reach very far places so we need to be aware of this so there was this uh, Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. and other countries. I wasn't very aware of this. Uh, thanks to Women Who Code, I, I also uh, learned more about it. And also the, all the feminist protests that happened in Mexico and Latin America recently uh, because all the femicides that were happening. And uh, also the LGBT rights movement, all the pride parades that happen in all parts of the world. We have our own here in Monterey. So we do need to be aware and really empathetic of what's happening. 
Also, the next one, uh, make sure when you are designing any kind of technology, make sure that everyone is represented and always show respects for other cultures and lifestyles. So this is an example that uh, it was very controversial a few months ago here in Mexico. It comes from a federal institute. It is a, the National Institute for Workers Housing. So you can get a mortgage or a housing credit if you are a Mexican worker. So recently they used this image of a gay couple inviting people to combine their credits with, with their partners so they can get more benefits. So it was very well received, very surprising. We didn't expect this. And it's really nice to see that everyone is being represented, that also uh, you know, before they will put this uh, usual family of the, the mom and the dad and the kids, and now they are using uh, different kinds of families and couples to show this, so everyone is being represented now. And finally, uh, especially at these times, uh, I think technology is becoming a crucial part of our lives. It uh, helps us feel close to one another, like in this event, uh, and we need to create human-centered and inclusive technology for everyone. As I told you, you don't have to be a designer to be thinking about your users, to be thinking of creating inclusive technology. And you can do this if you create technology at, at any level and any kind. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash Women Who Code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.